Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Genesis 39. Uh, we got some work to do. We will read... Um, just going to go with the whole text here as I usually do, and then we'll look at a few things from it as we go on in the sermon. So this is Genesis chapter 39. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. Said to his master's wife, Behold, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as Joseph spoke, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there with in the house, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought us among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh, came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him 
and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. My friends, the grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So this morning, we return to our narrative concerning Joseph. Back in chapter 37 of Genesis, we were left with this cliffhanger, right, of these brothers who uh, were out of anger at Joseph's sort of favored status in his family. They decide to kill him and throw him into a pit. And then they change their mind and they decide, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him for money. And if we can profit something and get rid of him that way. And so this is the cliffhanger that we are left with at the end of chapter 37 are these brothers, these siblings of Joseph, sell him to the Midianites, Ishmaelites, and he's taken off to Egypt and they are done with him. Uh, you and your siblings may not get along, but this family is truly something special. Uh, Chapter 39, after the little interlude of Judah and Tamar in chapter 38, chapter 39 now picks back up this Joseph narrative after this interlude of discussing this ugly picture of what it looks like to turn away from God. Judah, right, he marches away from the people of God. He goes his own direction, marries the Canaanite women. He, he, he turns away from God in his way. He turns his back on God and his promises in a very real way. Now after that ugly event of 38, we're back to 39 looking at, at Joseph. And things are not going well for him, right? The getting sold into slavery to the Ishmaelites is not a, is not a good thing. And we wonder, if you're, if you're reading this for the first time, I know we've just read the whole chapter, but you wonder what is Joseph's reaction going to be? Is he going to go the way of Judah, who as he's taken away from the people of God, he kind of just plunges himself into sinfulness? Will Joseph be the same? There's a bit of a contrast that's going on that I think Genesis 38 is put in there for a reason to show a really stark contrast of what it looks like to live for yourself and then to see Joseph living under the blessing of God, believing in the promises of God, I'm going to say, and, 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 and following after, living in a way that honors God. And so this is, this is where the chapter is going to go here with the life of Joseph. Joseph is going to seek to honor God. God's going to bless his efforts. And still, the status of his life from a worldly perspective is just going to get deeper and deeper and deeper, right? He's, he's an Ishmaelite. He's sold into slavery. And then he goes and he kind of rises in Potiphar's house. And then this event goes on and he ends up going into the king's prison. This season of life in Joseph's story makes me think of a line from Corey Ten Boom's A Hiding Place. I, I brought our little, our family copy. If you've not read this, uh, run, don't walk to the nearest Amazon and get a copy of this on the way. This is a phenomenal book. Corey Ten Boom, uh, written this one. If you don't want to read the book, there is a uh, YouTube for free, has The Hiding Place, uh, uh, put on by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association for free on YouTube. And I, I haven't seen it, so I can't recommend it. But if you don't want to read uh, the book, you might watch the show. Um, and so this, this is a, an incredible story. Corey Ten Boom and her, um, 
family, including her sister Betsy, they live in this town of Harlem in the Netherlands uh, during the invasion of Germany, in, of the start of World War II. And they go under Nazi occupation there in, in the Netherlands. They are, they're Christians, they're Dutch Reformed Christians, and out of their convictions of the image of God, uh, every man, woman, and child being an image bearer and, and deserving of value and dignity and worth and honor, they begin to protect Jewish people in Harlem, and they begin to hide them in their house. Not to give it away, it's why the book's called The Hiding Place. And they begin to hide Jewish people in their house. And as the story progresses, uh, I, want, I just asked you to read the book, but uh, they get caught. And uh, so, spoiler. But they, they get caught, and eventually the whole family is, is taken and captured. And eventually, uh, Corey Tamboom and her sister Betsy are put on a train out into Germany to a concentration camp called uh, Ravensburg or something like that. I can't say it in the German. Ravensbrück. I can't say it in the German. But they are taken on, loaded up on a train cart filled with lice and, and, and driven to, uh, on this train to this concentration camp. And being there for a, quite a period of time, all through this detention, um, Betsy and Corey, they find themselves able to have possession of a Bible, and they really can't figure that out. It's kind of incredible circumstances that they're able to have a Bible and, and lead Bible studies. But Betsy, who has a childhood illness, really, of anemia, she's got a blood issue, she doesn't do well in the concentration camp, which no one's doing well in these camps. The, this is an all-women's camp. Uh, buildings made for 400 people have 1,400 women crammed into them. Just incredibly and terrible uh, circumstances that they're living in. But uh, Betsy begins to fail in her health, and as she's as, as they know she's going to die and, and she's on a stretcher, she's going to the sick bay. Uh, Corey leans down to Betsy and, and just can tell that Betsy's telling her something. So she leans down to, to hear Betsy's words and Betsy tells her sister Corey as she's getting ready to die there in the concentration camp. She, Betsy says this, we must tell people what we have learned here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. Sometimes this quote, I think I've got it differently. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still, but there is no pit that God himself is not deeper still. There's a confession there that's walked out. What gives that such incredible power is that that isn't formed in times of ease for them. This is formed in very dark, hard times. As they go deeper and deeper into oppression under the Nazi regime, Betsy and Corey live this out, this understanding that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. If you want to read the book, you'll see the many ways that that's worked out in their lives. But even as Betsy lay dying, sick with fever, the vision of the greatness of her God overpowered her vision of all that had gone wrong and was going wrong from a worldly perspective. So also with Joseph. He finds himself falling deeper and deeper into various bad circumstances, yet somehow through it all, his vision of God enables him to trust God through it all. The narrative really is not that hard to follow, right? I mean, that's what's so great about the end of Genesis here. People love to get to the story of Joseph because it just reads so easily. If you haven't taken the time this afternoon, read these last 10 chapters of Genesis. The story moves quite well. But there, there's just kind of six main movements to follow. We can summarize them in about six ways. We First, we see the sale of Joseph to an officer of Pharaoh named Potiphar, right? 
There's something that right here at the beginning we're going to return to in just a second. But we hear this refrain, the Lord was, re, was, near, was with Joseph. They're almost bookends of the chapter. If you got your Bible out, you can see verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And then in verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. And then you go clear to the end, verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. And then at the end in verse 23, the Lord was with him. There's bookends to this chapter about the presence of God with Joseph. Yahweh, the Lord, this personal name for God, this personal God is here with Joseph. That's the first thing we see. And then we move on to the story. We see that Joseph's favor from God begins to bleed over into the, the situations around him. Potiphar's house begins to prosper and enjoys all these good times because of the blessing of God on Joseph's life. In a, in a real sense, this is a, 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 a tactile working out of the promise to Abraham that through him, the blessing would go to the nations. And there's this really interesting, like a, it's a small fulfillment of this great reality that's going to happen, but there's a, a small fulfillment of the, the people of God being a blessing to the nations around them. So it's not the ultimate fulfillment that we see in Christ and in his gospel. There's some very real working out of that blessing in the life of Joseph. Thirdly, we see that uh, Joseph, well, he... He makes the cover of GQ, basically, right? He, he's very handsome. And does no one know what GQ is anymore? Is that, is that too dative of a reference? <laughs> there used to be these things called magazines. And you got sent, and your mailman brought them to you. <laughs> and and, and they, they, they emphasized culture and lifestyle. One was called GQ, Gentleman's Quarterly. And it would have a, a handsome man on the front of it. Maybe People's uh, Sexiest Man of the Year would be a better comparison. That Joseph makes this. He, he is attractive. The Bible use, just uses this language. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Joseph was an attractive man. The same way that's talked about Sarah, same way it's talked about Rachel, this handsome term is used a few times in, in, your, in your Bible. And this is one, it's attributed to Joseph. He is a good looking man. And so then as a result, that's the setup then for Potiphar's wife wanting to, to lie with Joseph. She wants to have a, a sexual escapade with Joseph. Uh, we don't really know the context of what Potiphar and his wife's relationship is. Is there more stuff going on there? We don't really know, but we just know this. Joseph is attractive, and Potiphar's wife wants to make good on his attractiveness. And so Joseph is put in this difficult situation, and he resists. He does the commendable thing. He lives righteously, and he gives three reasons why he cannot betray his why he cannot lie with Potiphar's wife. First is that it would betray his master's trust, right? He's been given reign over everything in the household. Why would he betray Potiphar? Secondly, because, well, she's married to Potiphar. Like, I, I cannot lay with you. You are his wife. Therefore, I cannot lay with you. But the third thing, the third, the last item he caps it off with, he refrains from lying with Potiphar's wife because he says it would be a sin against God. He takes it up a notch. He says that not, it'd, be, it'd be a sin against Pharaoh, or sin against Potiphar. It'd be a sin against your marriage covenant, whatever that's looking like in Egypt. It's a sin against your marriage union. And it's a sin ultimately against God. And we'll return to that here in a second. When we see then Potiphar's wife, 
just creates a, an incredible story, and it's kind of fun. You can, see the, uh, you can see the story evolve as she goes along. First, she says to the servants, he left his garment, but then she takes the garment, she lays it down, and, and then she says, well, he left his garment, but actually she pulled it off of him. And so she kind of builds the lie in the story to make it more conceivable, to make it look even worse for Joseph. Joseph then is thrown into prison, and there in, in the prison, he actually, in the same thing that happened at Potiphar's house, as he sold into slavery, goes into Potiphar's house, and he prospers. And then this bad event happens. Potiphar's wife lies. He throws, he's thrown into jail, and then he prospers in the jail. That his, his righteousness is the blessing of God because God is with him. He, he actually prospers in this jail. It makes you think of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, that, that last uh, one of the Beatitudes you know, blessed are you when others revile you and say all manner of evil thing against you on my account. Blessed are you, Jesus says, for, for, for great is your reward in heaven for such as they do to the prophets before you. There's this blessing that comes upon the people of God when they endure the unjust words, the unjust consequences, the unjust actions, the persecutions of those around them that do not understand them. And that blessing then follows Joseph there in prison. And we see that this statement twice, again, Yahweh is with Joseph. I think that those statements, they really are important bookends for this chapter. One truth that seems to be emphasizing this in this chapter is that what, what is most important is not what happens to you, but who happens to be with you. And so Joseph's narrative and all that's going wrong and all the things, all the difficulty that's coming up in his life, these are all real things. Like we're not trying to like undersell that it's really terrible what's happened to Joseph. Very bad things have happened. And, and he really not deserved any of it. He had visions from God that he shared with his family. <laughs> like, that's not necessarily inherently bad to do that. Uh, he accepted his father's favor. I mean, his father loved him and gave him a coat and he wore it. He goes to check on his brothers. He, he's then sold into slavery. He's thrown into prison. He lives righteously. And yet, all of these bad things happening to him, what's being communicated to us here is that what is most important is not what happens to you, but who happens to be with you. Joseph is far from his homeland, far from his family, far from his father, far from the safety and security of his people, all alone and all abandoned, except for this one great reality. He has not gone outside of the grasp of his God. <laughs> all of the things he's been thrown away from and been taken away from, he has not escaped the grasp of his God. Yahweh is still with him. Obviously, you know, in one sense, God's with everyone everywhere because God is omnipresent. All places are present with God all the time. So God, in a very real sense, it's like, it's not, not a real big revelation that God is with Joseph. Sure, God's with him because God's everywhere, but that's not what the Bible is saying. God is not with Joseph merely because God is everywhere. He is with Joseph because Joseph is one of God's people. He's one of these descendants from the line of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He's this descendant of the line of Abraham, and he is one of God's people. He isn't just with him in a general sense. He's with him in the specific sense that as one of God's people, God is with him. God is paying attention to him. God is blessing him. God is noticing him. He's this descendant 
of Abraham. He knows that this God is the God who sees. You remember the incident with Hagar as she is, is cast out and she's out looking for water. She's the first one to give God a name, really. She says that God is the God who sees. He's the God who sees me. So Joseph being probably aware of the story that our God is a God who sees and he probably knows the story of Abraham and Isaac where, where God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and he goes to Mount Moriah and about finishes the job but God stops it and, and there God is called the God who provides. You are the God who sees. He is the God who provides and Joseph knows this God. He's in this lineage. He's one of the people of God and so God is with him. This God who sees and this God who provides is this God who is with him. It reminds me of an old hymn. You probably don't know it because we don't sing stuff like this anymore. The tune, if you want to look it up, it's, it's kind of fun to listen to. But uh, a hymn, uh, some of you might remember Virginia Scott. This is one she had sung at her funeral. But uh, she, she preferred, she, I never heard this till she mentioned it. But the hymn is, If Jesus Goes With Me. And it has this opening stanza. It says that, I won't sing it for you. You're welcome. It goes like this. It says, It may be in the valley where countless dangers hide. It may be in the sunshine that I in peace abide. But this one thing I know, if it be dark or fair, if Jesus is with me, I'll go anywhere. And that's this, that's this, this, thrust behind the life of Joseph that you know, what matters most is not what happens to him, but who happens to be with him. If Jesus goes with me, I'll go anywhere. So not only is God with Joseph, but Joseph lives in that truth. Look with me again at his objection to Potiphar's wife. He, he completes his reasons for not yielding to her desire to be with him by saying that to do so would be sin against God himself. And I think it's worth camping out here just for a few minutes. What does that mean? Because there's, there's an important concept here for our hamartiology. This is our doctrine of sin. Some of you like the big word stuff. Some of you hate it. If you hate it, forget this. But if you like it, hamartiology is the doctrine of sin, coming from the Greek word amartia, and then ology, thoughts on, or words about doctrine of sin. This is, this is really important for our doctrine of sin. When you think about sin, we can go to our catechism, right? We were working through the New City Catechism, some of us. Question and answer uh, 16 or 17. I've got 17 there. I think it's, I got 16 here. I don't know. You figure it out. Uh, question, what is, the question is, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. Rebelling against him by living without reference to him. Not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the dis disintegration of all creation. Sin is not merely, I like this definition because we often just think sin is doing bad things. Well, that's commission. There's also sins of omission. But it also brings up this idea that sin is rebelling against God by living without reference to him. As though my actions have nothing really to do with this God who is everywhere, who knows me, who sees me, who will provide all things for me. And living with and rebelling against him as living without reference to him, that is part of our definition of sin. Joseph realizes that not only is this sin, would it be harmful to Potiphar, harmful to Potiphar's wife, not only does he realize that this sin would be harmful to himself because it's going to cause all sorts of natural trouble for him, it's also a sin against God. And that concerns him. 
That is where he's like, I, this, to do this would be to sin against God. We're very comfortable at times talking about sin being something that hurts the things, people in our world. And so we'll, we'll encourage people and ourselves not to sin because of the damage that it might do to others. And that's true. That's absolutely true. Sometimes we'll even talk about the damage that sin will do to ourselves. That, it, that it, like people will talk about, uh, it's a, well, I don't know if I can op- reference Oprah anymore because like she's so out of the culture. But like, it's an Oprahism that to, to not forgive someone is, is like it's sinful because it harms yourself. You're just holding yourself back. And I mean, there's a, a, a grain of truth to that, that if you don't forgive others, that it does warp you. But the, but the real sin of not forgiving others is that you've been commanded by God to do so. <laughs> and to not forgive, the real trouble is not the harm that it does out there or even the harm that it does to you. It is the offense as it is living in rebellion as though God doesn't even really matter in this issue. And Joseph doesn't live this way. He's got the same attitude of David in chapter, Psalm, uh, chapter 51 of the book of Psalms when he says, "...against you and you only have I sinned." An honest Christian perspective sees all sin as ultimately transgressing against God himself. To whatever degree is it against ourselves or others, it is always against him, and no sin can be hidden from him. So what's incredible is that though Joseph has been through unimaginably tough times, he has not lost sight of the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has not forgotten who he is. You know, we could turn... We could turn the life of Joseph just into a moral examples, and we do this with the Bible all the time. Uh, and maybe you've been raised in, in churches where this is what they did with the Bible, and basically it was just created for you lists of things to do and lists of things to avoid. And, and that's all that the Bible really was, a good moralist book. Do right things, avoid bad things. And you could take the life of Jacob, and you could say, see, Finally, I mean, we, we honestly would breathe a sigh of relief. Finally, somebody in the book of Genesis doing good, not giving their wife out as their sister, not, uh, I don't want to go through the list. It's too awful, right? We've read it. We've been through it. Here is someone doing the right thing. And so we could just take the life of J- J- Joseph and turn it into moral tales. And that isn't bad. But at the end of the, end of the day, it doesn't go far enough. What we need And what Joseph doesn't need isn't just a list. Joseph doesn't need a list. We don't just need a list. We need a great view of God. What you need are not better commands of things to do and things to don't do, though we have things we should do and things we should not do. Very real things we should do and should not do. But what you need more than just lists, more than just burdens of things to do or not to do, what you need is a great view of God. What Joseph has in that moment is not just, well, I know this is wrong, so I should not do it. He's concerned that it would be sin against God. He has a great view of the God of his fathers. He has a great view of God, and that is what provokes him. That's what empowers him. That's what strengthens him to to say no, because he has a great view of God. Not a great list of do's and don'ts, but he has a view of a great God. Francis Schaeffer uses this uh, illustration in his book, True Spirituality. He speaks of our lives as in- inherently naturalistic. You know, we, we live in a world uh, as where we can see, we can feel, we can taste, touch, and see, where cause and effect are, happen. Reason and logic, they all rule. We live in this very naturalistic world. And so then as a result, we, we begin to think of this world as one being in a closed system. 
If it's not something I can taste, touch, see, or feel, if it's not something I can reason out or make sense, then we're suspicious of it. But Genesis is showing us something completely different. This is not a closed system where we are in charge. This is not a closed system. This is, this is a world in which God reigns. Schaefer makes the observation that wrongly for many, spirituality is like this. So we're in this closed room. And spirituality, we live in this system. And so what we're going to do to make ourselves spiritual is we're going to go open a few windows, which there's no windows in here. But we're going to open the doors to the outside and let a little spirituality into our world. And that's the way that, that spirituality is kind of conceived of. And many religions get at it, get at it different ways. They'll, they'll um, do so through meditation or positive thinking or positive affirmations or meditation or, or uh, in, the, in its radical senses might even try like hallucinatory drugs as a way to open a, a window to get some spirituality in to, to our little closed world. But true Christianity is far different than that. True Christianity blows the roof off and tears the walls down. Because it, and it sees our existence not as one in a closed system where we're trying to get some God in, but in our little room, we're trying to bring God into our little room. It blows the roof off, it takes the walls down, and sees that we are the little, the, the, we are the little in God's big world. We don't bring God into our little world. We have our eyes open to our little place in his big world. He is the one who is moving. This is both exhilarating and terrifying. It's terrifying because God is so big and so in charge that you can't escape him. You can't live in your little room and let Jesus in a little bit. And then I, I got enough Jesus now. I'm going to shut that window back down until I need him some more. And then I'm going to open the window up and let a little more of Jesus in when I need some help. And then close it down when I want to do my own thing in here. No. You don't live in that kind of world. There is no roof. The walls are down. It's his world. And when our, our obligation, our job is to find ourselves in the midst of his world, you can't escape him. You cannot maneuver him. It's terrifying, but it's also exhilarating because if you are a Christian, here, Christian in here this morning, this awesome God is for you and working for your good and his glory. We think that the things that we see in this life are all there is. We think that the things we observe are actually um, temporal. It, it is, instead, it is the things that we do not see that are actually uh, eternal and unshaking. Thinking of a passage like 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction. Okay, and this is Paul who's gone through some stuff. Like Joseph's gone through some stuff. Paul's gone through some stuff, but he calls whipping and stoning and beating to the point of death. He says this moment, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or, or temporal. They're not permanent. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Is this your vision? of the world. Is this your vision of God? As much as, as Joseph may have known and been taught, we see him much more fully. We sit on this side of the cross. We see it on this side of the incarnation. We now know that the blessing that is going to go to all nations is going to be fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ. 
that Abraham is the forefather of our faith, that all who believe in Christ are grafted by faith into the family of Abraham. We become his descendants by faith in Jesus Christ. We become a part of the people of God such that he is with us as a part of his family. And, 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 a, and as grounded of a way as Joseph knows, being descended from Abraham, we through faith in Christ, being grafted in to his family, should have the same assurance. We know that that blessing is going to be fulfilled through the work of Christ. You know, we can see so many ways that Joseph is a typological fig figure of Jesus. Jesus, like Joseph, he's going to be sent by God the Father. Jesus, like Joseph, is sent by God the Father, and he takes on the form of a servant. He becomes a servant. He doesn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, like Joseph, is falsely accused and punished. Jesus, like Joseph, bears the path laid before him righteously, trusting the Father's will for him, thinking of him in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays, Father, not my will be done, but yours. Jesus, like Joseph, endures all of this because of the greater purpose that is at work through all of it. It is through the enduring suffering of Jesus that aliens to his righteousness, aliens to God, hostile enemies of God, are then made heirs, true children, through faith in Christ. For this reason, so what? For this reason, three things. If you're here this morning and you know yourself, if you do not know Jesus in this saving way, you can become a part of the family of God. You can look to Christ who took your sinfulness upon himself. Your rebellion, Jesus never once rebelled against his Father. Live righteously. We, in thousands of ways, day in and day out, ignore God, dismiss him, disobey him. And because of that, we deserve the wrath of God. And what Christ has done is he has put on flesh. He has walked the righteous life each one of us should have lived and didn't. And bore then our wrath, the, the condemnation that we deserve, he took upon himself. So that every one of us in this room this morning, confessing that sin, looking to Christ and his sufficiency, could be forgiven of that sin made righteous in God's sight and adopted into his family such that we become children of God that have God now not just with us in the sense that he's with everyone because he's everywhere, but with us because we are his beloved children through faith in Christ. That can be yours. That can be yours in this place this morning. And if it is, I, I plead with you, make it yours. I plead with you, trust Christ. Become a part of the family of God. Because as you do, here's what you see. You see, you, as, as, as these truths come out to us in the, in the life of Joseph, we ought to be enlightened. We ought to be spiritually aware. We ought to realize that there is far more going on than we, than we are aware of. We ought to be enlightened. We ought to be encouraged. Do not lose heart. God does not abandon his children. And we ought to be emboldened. Trust him and act. Live righteously. Turn from sin. God is doing countless things at any given moment. And sometimes by his grace, we might know one, maybe two of those things. <laughs> constantly doing thousands of things. And even that had a point. I don't know what it was. But constantly doing a thousand things at any moment. And we're aware of one or two of them. We're aware of one or two of them.
But in this, we can be confident. He is working his purposes of redemption for his people. And none of those who are his will be disappointed on that great final day. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts resting, not in our ability to work a list, not in the pridefulness of ourselves that, God, we have made you happy, or even the, the, the perverse side of pride that says we've disappointed you too much. But, God, help us to rest in your greatness, not our ability to be good or bad, but in your greatness and in your mercy. Because in your kindness, in your loving kindness, you sent your Son to save us out of our failure, out of our rebellion, out of our ignorance, out of our hatred of you, that we might be rescued, be redeemed, be made one of your dear children so that we can walk out this life knowing that what matters most is not what happens to us, but who happens to be with us. That with you with us, we can go anywhere. The darkness of the valley, if in the sunshine, wherever it may be, if Jesus goes with us, we'll gladly go. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.